The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Is it mad that the world burning is not in our, like, top three concerns? You thought bad news was done, but I'm back with more. And Alice Sneddon's Bad News Saves the World. I finally address the climate crisis and explore why no one cares. Watch it on thespinoff.co.nz. I can see the anxiety starting to emit from you. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Did you know that New Zealand has a big pharma company or that it almost didn't anymore? Well, today we're telling the story of Douglas Pharmaceuticals, a family-owned drug giant that since 1967 has grown from a company making generic drugs, once they fell out a patent, which is a bit more of a difficult process than that makes that sound, to now be researching new uses for previously proven safe drugs. The company does upwards of $250 million a year, with the bulk of that as exports, and it was almost sold a few years ago before deciding that there was a future here. Part of that future is bringing new talent on board and a strong R&D programme. And as part of that, we're going to be joined today by Dr Peter Sermon, the Chief Scientific Officer and 23-year member of the company, and Simone Hollier, a new product portfolio analyst who they took on through an R&D experience grant that's available through Callahan Innovation that people listening might be able to access. To find out more about getting students into your research, the growth of the company and making drugs here, Dr. Peter Sermon and Simone Hollier join us now. Kelda, good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, first up, Peter, tell me a little bit about the history of this company because it, it kind of flies under the radar in a funny way for such a significant company in the country, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. It, it originated actually as a little pharmacy on, uh, in Teatitu South. Uh, the pharmacy's still there, but you know, the Douglas family don't own it now. And uh, Graham Douglas was always interested, as, as, as a pharmacist, he wanted to grow a bigger business. There were limitations on growing pharmacy ownership. Uh, so a way for him to, to expand was to actually import medicines. So he was importing some medicines way back in the 60s um, uh, from, from Europe. And some of those relationships we still have today with companies that he was working with. And over a period of time, uh, there were opportunities, say, with drugs like frusamide and also with antibiotics. And I think the first manufacturing, they started to manu- manufacture in the 1980s. Uh, so it was a matter, it was went from being a distributing company, having a little manufacturing base. There were a few manufacturing bases throughout uh, Auckland. Um, and then uh, 
Graham Douglas and his family continued to live out in Te Atatū, so they decided to centralise their, their services and they, they uh, built a head office where we are today in around 1990. And in uh, a manufacturing, it was all brought together during the 1990s at, the, at a site just across the road. So um, now the man- there's a, a, an extensive manufacturing of, of products. Some of them are our own products. Some of them are products that we make for multinationals, for uh, New Zealand. Um, and in the probably since the 1990s, it became quite challenging to actually make money selling pharmaceuticals in New Zealand because there was the, um, the Farm Act legislation which created basically the government as a one buyer of pharmaceuticals. So prices really it would drop very quickly. Uh, it was very good for the taxpayer, um, but and also really for Douglas, it forced us to look beyond just being a New Zealand company, a New Zealand pharma company. Uh, and that's about the time when I joined the company, all of that was happening uh, around the mid-90s. So we started selling uh, medicine and developing it for Australia. And then beyond Australia, we started developing products with Europe in mind, and the first product, uh, generic product that we developed for Europe was uh, a vitamin A derivative called isotretinoin for severe acne. And for us, that was uh, uh, our first generic, and it was also the first generic in the world of Roche's Roaccutane uh, drug, or Accutane. And uh, that product is still our biggest product in Europe. And uh, we were, the, you know, being the, the first in the market is a huge advantage for generics. T- tell us about what a what's a generic. Take us back to the beginning with that. So a generic medicine is uh, it's, it's a molecule. Uh, for us, these are small molecules, and um, and basically, uh, for a time, once they're first commercialised by a, a major pharma company, that that pharma company will have a patent on that drug. So only they can sell the molecule. They have a composition of matter patent, and that might last for twenty or twenty five years, and but after that point, it becomes what's known as uh, a product which is open to competition. So they call it generic competition because it's the same uh, same molecule. And the, the burden on the generic company is to develop a product that uh, releases the drug in the same manner to the same extent as the as a branded product. And uh, for oral products, that usually means that you have to do a clinical trial, a bioequivalent study, to confirm that the blood levels you get hour after hour taking the innovator product is statistically the same as taking um, you know, the, the test product that we've developed. And for topical products, generics, you end up having to do uh, clinical endpoint trials where you, know, you put the product on and you see does it actually treat the condition if it's a fungal infection to the same extent. So um, often you have to develop a product um, exactly you have to develop exactly the same as the brand, and it, it can actually be a, a challenge to develop a product that actually may be not optimised for today. So it might be a product that's old technology. And if you could start again, it's sometimes easier to develop a novel product than to develop a generic. But uh, but none, nonetheless, it's, it's all about price containment and competition in the marketplace. So you'll see a big price drop when generics come in. That's really the main advantage. How interesting. So it's not... Um so it removes the burden of having to prove that something is safe for humans, which I exactly. imagine is the really, really big hurdle to, safe to jump over. And efficacy, that it actually works, particularly for an oral medicine, so you don't have to show that because the clinical trial. So you, you leverage the clinical data from the innovator because their patent has expired, 
uh, but you still have to show the quality. That, that it yeah. works and that mm. it, it uh, acts as intended. In, in a similar manner, yeah. Yeah, wow. And is that mainly for the benefit of the prescribers? So if you go, we've got the same uh, molecule in there, but it does a different thing, then they'll go, well, I don't know how to prescribe that compared to what I'm used to prescribing. Uh, exactly. So if there's uh, if you want to have the drug releasing the drug at a similar rate, so you don't get people having a real spike in blood levels, and they might have they might pass out or faint, or the drug might not release completely, and uh, then you end up with not managing the symptoms or treating the disease. So in order to um, prescribe, a doctor really wants to know that the product that's the generic has been through clinical trials to show that it can actually be, it is statistically equivalent to the product on the market. And so that's what you, you the kind of the company where it found its really big growth, taking those generics and getting into those big export markets. Yeah, that was, that's right. And then tell me about the thing that is uh, the, the new kind of research area where is that a case of taking these drugs that have come out of their patent period, so they're now generics, and finding new uses for them? So they've been proven safe for humans, but you find new applications for them for treating other conditions. Yeah, it's, it's sort of an organic step from you know being a distributor to being making copies of products to now making you know, products using the same molecule but for a new disease. For an un, you know untreated condition, um, yeah, it's it's an opportunity for us to then have intellectual property with the product that we're developing and put protection around it like a brand would. These these are all branded products when they come to the market, and uh, with the protection that we we put in place, either it's a patent or know-how or, or, or clinical data, that we have market exclusivity for a certain period of time, so that that product can grow and become a you know, a, a market of value that would, you know, make a return on investment from what can be anything from $50 million to $300 million just for for a repurposing. So it's it's still a, an expensive uh, expensive project, these repurposings, uh, but they're nowhere near as uh, big as a blue sky molecule trying to get that actually into a, even into the first in human studies is many millions of dollars and you know, they're sort of the multi-billion dollar type, type plays for the big pharma companies. Which is so remarkable, multi-billion dollar budgets and um, on the on the kind of um, a hope and a dream as well so often. And I guess this is where you come in, Simone, which is actually working out like what uh, what drugs should be looked at and what other uses there might be. T- tell me about how you came to be part of the company. Um, well, I actually, I started two years ago on a three-month internship um, where I was working in the lab and I was pretty lucky there was a space uh, for me working and research on new products. Um, so it's a lot of actually market research. Um, I look into uh, indications on kind of what drugs there are for indications um, and if there is a space for us in the market. Um, it's really, really interesting. Um, I didn't really see myself working in this kind of position when I left university, but you know, it's, it's really interesting. And how do you find this stuff out? Because I, I understand that one of the um, the big issues with uh, research and clinical trials that people do privately, as these big companies do, is that they don't tell people, A, if they don't work like they wanted them to, and B, they don't like to let out information about other uses uh, because they might want to keep that to themselves. So how do you how do you go about actually kind of going, well, this has this application and I, I have a strong reason to believe it could have other applications? 
Um, I think uh, for new indications, Peter gets a lot of insight from research scientists. Um, I don't tend to work in that space trying to figure out whether it will have efficacy in certain diseases because, yeah, I, I mainly look at the market for new novel products. Um, and for generics, we use a lot of databases, um, Cortalis, uh, just lots of research into what might be out there. Um, it's it's really hard to, to know, like you said, because companies do keep that to themselves. Um, sometimes, yeah, we, we have no idea if there's going to be 10 generics for one product. Um, so it's just kind of taking information from heaps of different places and trying to kind of stick it all together and make sense of it. Yeah. I mean, Simone, you, you've come up with a selection criteria that are, yeah. that help to pick what a generic product is. You know, what what is um, an attractive product to develop in terms of a return on investment for a company that might develop it. And probably the biggest criterion these days is number of competitors. Mm. And, and that usually means that my formulation team then have a challenge to come up with a product where, where if it has to be really less than five competitors or else your product, the price of the product in the United States market will drop by 99%. And uh, so then you're selling the product for pennies and quite often you'll have 20 or 30 competitors for a drug and it's selling for probably you know cheaper than a pack of Panadol or, you know, or, or just... So we have to pick the products where... And if there's less than three competitors, that it's going to have a, a lot of complexity about it. You know, it might be a very complicated dosage form. It might have a high rate of failing in trials and stability. So we tend to try to pick up those, was it unicorn type products? Um, but probably Simon turns over about a thousand for one that we actually start. Wow. Mm. Tell me about one that you have got in the works, which is something really interesting around the mental health space okay. and uh, treating depression with ketamine, which is something that's been getting big news around the world as a possible kind of application. What's the work you're doing there? So with, with ketamine, there's been quite a lot of off-label use over the last decade or so looking at, at depression and, and treatment-resistant depression and the only product available at the moment is a, a non-licensed um, IV therapy. And, and that people will go to clinics and they'll get treated. Maybe they'll have an IV infusion once a month and that you know, alleviates the symptoms for them. Uh, but it's all anecdotal. There's no, there's no clear statistics to say yeah, this really does work or it's just a placebo effect. Um, but on the... And also in terms of compliance, taking a, a, a non-registered medicine also has a lot of risks around safety. Not many people with ketamine, it's a product that you take historically for pain. It's, if you have an accident, you may be treated with ketamine or you need a general anaesthetic, it may be with ketamine. So we don't know what happens if it's taken for three months or a year, what, what like long-term neurological effect might be. So, so for us, we're really interested in a convenient product for, for patients who can you know, ideally take it at home, uh, and it's an oral dose. It's always nice to take something to swallow a tablet than having to get an IV. So we're working, we've developed a, a, a controlled release form of ketamine that uh, is well tolerated, and it's, it's been through phase one trials. So we, we've seen 
what patients can tolerate before they start to have side effects, what the you know an effective dose might be, and now we're in a phase two trial called Bedrock. Um, that's a beating depression with R107. So that's a um, a product that uh, is we're trying to recruit maybe 250 uh, patients to get 150 onto a maintenance program. And yeah, we're looking to see if we can not only treat the depression but also maintain a, a, a good state of mental health for a long period of time. That's fascinating. So you're currently on the lookout, are you, for people in New Zealand who are having uh, treatment-resistant depression and are looking to take a new drug? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got several sites in New Zealand that are active. Um, there's uh, one in Dunedin, one in Auckland, uh, one in Christchurch. And, yeah, so definitely if anybody um, you know thinks that they could be a participant or know somebody who could be a participant in that trial, they can talk to their doctor and, um, they can be put in contact. That must be so exciting to be working on taking something like that that has had, uh, as you say, off-label uh, and, and anecdotal use and building the science and building uh, the case for it. Uh, how did you come to land on that as a area for exploration and research? One, we had an excellent clinician who came to us, who we knew we've worked with in the past on another uh, mental health medicine. Uh, and uh, Paul has a great um, uh, background in, in, in pharma development with, with multinationals. So he knows the pathway, uh, Paul Glue knows the pathway through to uh, approval. And you've really got to have a product that a clinician or a doctor is willing to put into a patient. So there's a huge difference between a researcher who's got something on the bench in a petri dish, and he, um, you know, and has an idea that it might work in a patient. You then have to have a hard job to convince a doctor to try it on their patient. But with ketamine, um, what, there was there was anecdotal evidence that it worked and it was reasonably safe. And also we had a really good clinician because it really has to be clinician-led research. And and Paul came with us to Washington. Uh, DC to talk to the FDA to get their blessing on the phase two trial to make sure it would meet their endpoints. If we meet our endpoints, that they would accept that as being a significant result. So, and the other thing element about what made ketamine appealing was that it's a serious unmet need. Um, there's really nothing else in the space. The FDA hasn't had a, a drug, a new class of antidepressants in 30 years since uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So it was. That's why I think they were interested, why they wanted to meet with us. Um, there has been one product in this space, which Johnson & Johnson have just uh, recently launched as a nasal spray of S-ketamine. So it's one of the parts of ketamine. Um, but really, that's, 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 that was a, a, you know, a breakthrough moment for Johnson & Johnson. And we hope that this product will be even easier to take and, and better tolerated. What does it how? Yeah, like, like, what and how does something that seems to be so um, kind of famous as a disassociative? What, what does it do? Does it break a pattern, or does it? Um, how does a once a month dose mean that people have um, lasting efficacy out of it? If it's not kind of a daily thing, what's going on? Do you have a, a, a an idea around it, or is it something you're still exploring? Oh, there, there, there's a, a lot around the mechanism that. Um, 
we're learning and there's, there's lots of good research even at Auckland University there's good research on what's the mechanism of ketamine action uh, but it does seem to be you know, helping in the formation of neural connections and um, and it happens very rapidly so you can actually see these effects you know with uh, with detectors and uh, and and some very very classy experiments are happening to show what's happening in the brain of someone who's depressed who's treated with ketamine because we already know that if you're going to respond, you're going to respond within a day or two. And there are real effects now that you can see at the cellular level and at the neural level that it is um, helping with neural plasticity and connections and forming bonds. So maybe ultimately at, at, a, at, a, at a living level, actually affecting, changing the way we think or, or making new connections to make what was not positive positive and connecting up the right parts of the brain and, and dampening down others. Uh, I mean, and but then there's also that sort of uh, psychedelic side of it, which you're trying to minimise because you don't really want that dissociation where you know, people are feeling you know, out of body and and weird, and and um, so it's a matter of finding that happy dose that actually helps with the depression but doesn't lead to the you know the adverse effects. So, and we're hoping that we're hopeful that we can get down to the level we're working at where the dissociation will be minimal. So patients, the ideal drug would be one where people can just go about, do their normal job, drive a car um, and, and, uh, and, and not be a risk to themselves or anyone else when they, when they take it. That would be the ultimate fix. Ah, so very different than the Johns Hopkins kind of research at the moment around psilocybin and going down the direct other path of as, as psychedelic as you can get to try and get the same result. Yep, yep, psilocybin, and I, th- I think there's also LSD as well, are sort of being being tried in in, um, in depression and, and neurological conditions, and it, but, and again, I think they're working at very low levels. Mm. So again, they're trying to sort of say, well, what happens if we actually dose this at a therapeutic level, not at a, you know, a, a trip sort of level? And yeah, I think they're having some interesting results. So there are some old drugs coming back into being explored because they were so active. What are the challenges with running research like this? Not not necessarily just around a drug like ketamine, but about, um, yeah, like when you say it's a fifty to a hundred million dollar process, how certain are you it's going to work, and how many of these don't work, and how many <laughs> things not working can a company stand? Yeah, it does keep me awake at night sometimes thinking about that, and it pays not to uh, not to think about it too much because they are hugely expensive. Um, and not everyone is going to is going to work. So what what we try to do is put strict controls around it and have some objectivity and decision making around budgets. So if we start to see, uh, we would usually like to see a signal. If we don't see a signal, then we will look at stopping at that point. So and then you hope that you can then transfer money to a product that's doing better. So I'm not sure what the rate of success is in repurposing. Um, but by the time you start to get through to a, a phase two trial, you've probably got about 50% chance that it will get through to the market, um, which doesn't sound like very good odds if you're putting on, um, you know, if it's costing you, say, 30 to $50 million to get to that point. Um, so you kind of have to have two or three options in the pipeline. So you, and it's usually one out of those three that will actually deliver the big hit. And then the other two, you just have to be uh, judicious and, and, and quite often, um, yeah, and, and it, there's, there's, it's a very difficult decisions for companies to make and some companies end up 
failing and going back and trying once again in another population. You know, and before they know it, they've spent two or three hundred million dollars, and that's where it's, it gets very painful. And I'll bet that part of the equation then is like how big the market size and the opportunity is out the other side, Simon. Yeah, exactly. That's where Simon helps us a lot, looking at at the market potential market for it. Yeah. In terms of uh, that kind of you know bringing the talent and the research in, uh, how big now is Douglas Pharmaceuticals? Overall, there's between seven and eight hundred staff, um, and in Auckland here, it's the biggest population by by far. It's five hundred and fifty to six hundred, um, and in terms of the R and D, I think we just added up just a moment ago that it was probably around one hundred and thirty staff that are um, part of my team. Whether they're doing you know, clinical trial management regulatory affairs where they're actually putting together the submissions to go to the FDA or New Zealand MedSafe and there's 90 staff doing formulation and analytical test method development to control, make sure we've got the right amount of active in the product, that the impurity levels are low. And in in Philadelphia we have around 25 staff that are also working on uh, principally generic medicines like uh, complex suspensions and creams and ointments. How's the talent pipeline? Like, do you know what? What's the kind of challenge around doing that in a small country like New Zealand, with so few kind of research universities compared to big bigger markets, maybe like like the US? Yeah, definitely, it's um, more on the job training we we have here. So there's not a lot of um, there's nowhere particularly to poach from. But there are similar industries in analytical chemistry, so we we, we, we draw on other industries that may be uh, you know working in contract test laboratories is a good place where pe- where people will come from. Where where it's harder to recruit is is uh, formulation development, what they call pharmaceutics development for the United States and Europe. So um, a lot of lot of the staff in my team have been with the company twenty years or more or certainly a lot more than 15 years. And you know, from time to time, we're able to bring someone in from overseas on a particular type of you know, product area. But increasingly, we, we've had to, since we've now we've got to the size we are, we need to think systematically about um, how to make people, how to develop people in the Douglas way. So it's, it's like the, the way that the way that Douglas wants to be. And so we've got a, a program that really looks out to 2025 and we're trying to develop people from university and from other careers that they come from into being either you know, an expert manufacturer of products or an ex- expert developer of products. And, uh, and so these you know, programs like what we have here with the summer internships from Callaghan, that's actually a really good way to bring in good quality new graduates and, and um, develop them in, in the ways of our company. How important is that in kind of at the decision-making of keeping on going inside a country and, uh, you, you know, building out uh, R&D here rather than going to a place where maybe there are poachable people. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose we have a little uh, bet each way in some ways. I mean, we've got the laboratory in Philadelphia, so that was quite straightforward to get a few formulators. And uh, and if we need to hire talent, it's um, there's plenty of people in New Jersey and, and around uh, around uh, Pennsylvania, so it's a great, great place for, for picking up uh, people. 
Um, yeah, that's uh, why would you go? Um, but to go overseas, the, the downside is that it's a long way from where the owners are, and um, and also it's not cheap. Uh, so the cost of development and the cost of labour in the United States is very high. So um, because we're working to the same standard, we have the US FDA come down and see us uh, once a year, once every two years at, um, at least, and you know. We, we get good audits and uh, and we're providing product that's getting registered. So why not develop it in New Zealand? Yeah. And in terms of getting access to these kind of um, this R&D experience grant, for example, where you get a, a an intern to do 400 hours and it's all kind of funded, it's surprisingly available, isn't it? So it's pretty much any company that has uh, an R&D function with staff running it and an existing program of spending. And that's quite a wide... Uh, yeah, quite a wide basket, really. It is. It's a really, really, really broad remit, and uh, we've taken advantage of it for probably the best part. Well, since the program began eight or ten years ago, we started off just with one or two per year. Uh, I think for the last couple of years, we've taken on ten. Uh, we, I think we, we thought we'd be a bit cheeky that year and say, let's put in for ten, and we got it, so it's fantastic. Um, and now we use it not only for bringing people into the pure R&D area, but we use it for you know, the technical transfer type area and the quality control. And uh, I think I think maybe four out of five of the of the people that went to the quality control area have stayed. So it's fantastic. Um, and by the time they've done that three months, they really know whether that type of work is for them. And we also know whether they're the type of people to work for us. So it's a huge de-risking. Um, and then I think in the R&D area, we took on most, we take on most of them. Uh, some of them go off and do a, a, another degree, and then maybe come back to us. But yeah, it's it's, it's a really good way to to um, you know, develop within New Zealand. What kind of advice do both of you have for people wanting to get involved with an industry like this? Because I imagine there's quite like long. You've got to have like a a long view and be patient to get these things through the right mm-hmm. results. But it must be very satisfying to be working on projects that can have such strong application to help people with things like uh, untreatable depression. Yeah, maybe I'll go first. And this, uh, this uh, I mean, our, we've been looking at a, like the Douglas vision, what it's all about, and, and the staff themselves have, have, have broken it down into two words anyway about improving lives. And I think that's what we're about. Um, you know, there is obviously a return on investment consideration, but what gets us out of bed as scientists and uh, you know, portfolio people, I think it's the fact that we are actually doing these therapies that, that people are, are really desperate to have. And you know, I, I find that hugely rewarding. And if we could get one or two of these products approved, um, it's a real buzz. And I think with generic products, um, we're providing an opportunity to uh, get better access to medicines, make them more affordable. One of the products that we we developed, it was selling at around 35000 US dollars for a bottle of 100 capsules. You know, so that was just one month therapy. So it wasn't being used very much for this type of cancer that it was treating. Um, now, since we've come on the market, the price has dropped down below two thousand dollars. So that's a huge, uh, you know, opportunity. Now we see the prescribing going up. So, and also, it's really nice to be able to see a product that you maybe spoke about developing, and then you see it in the market. For me, that's a real buzz. What about you, Simon? I guess I find research really, really interesting. Um, and so if 
people are thinking about applying for jobs like this. Um, if you enjoy studying and you enjoy learning, then I think jobs like mine are really perfect because I learn new things every day. Um, some things about diseases, um, prevalence of diseases, also about the market. Um, so a lot of financial stuff really goes into my job as well. So it's really varied. Um, and you can, can see what other people are doing in the labs. So kind of get really a lot of broad experience um, and a lot of learning, which I find just really interesting. Yeah. And along the way, have, have anyone, has anyone ever told you that it couldn't be done here? Mike, it, it seems to be quite surprising that it is being done here. Yeah, it does. And I, I think no one said it, that it couldn't be done. But um, also, I think there's a lot of modesty, I think, on the part of the company owners. And um, Graham and Jeff Douglas have kept a pretty low profile. So there's always, there was, a, there was the times in the 90s with the biotech sort of bubble that came up and went away. And, uh, you know, I suppose we were doing work that was seen as being just real, really copying other people's products. So, we're coming from a sort of a a type of uh, you know obscure where we came from, but those those skills that we developed in pharma development were actually very applicable to you know to novel medicines. So it wasn't the blue sky university research we were doing, but it was it was doing everything with a molecule to make it into a medicine. And um, so we knew that we we knew that we could do generics. So it wasn't such a big step for us to do this. Um, but maybe it's a little bit surprising that it's come out of New Zealand that, that, that we've got to it this way. Um, but it's a, it, it's a good solid base that we're building on. And um, yeah, if we can just pick the right molecules, and hopefully we have, you know, um, I think it will lead to, I, I'd really wish that it would lead to a sustainable industry where that we can then work closer with medicinal chemistry as well and actually work with some of the, uh, the newer molecules. I think the ultimate would be a, a New Zealand pharmaceutical industry that's got a whole spectrum of generic repurposing, novel university research as well, and you know buzzing along and adding value for New Zealand before these great ideas get licensed off to a major pharma company and sort of put on the shelf. That's so cool. Thank mm. you so much for sharing the story and, and uh, yeah, the work that you're doing towards that vision. Thank you for joining us. That's Dr. Peter Sermon, Chief Scientific Officer and Simone Hollier, New Product Portfolio Analyst at Douglas Pharmaceuticals. Thanks for being here today. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you Tina Tiller, for producing and thank you very much for having us along and listening. Uh, if you are a fan and follower of The Spinoff, make sure you check out The Spinoff Members, uh, a program where you're able to get behind and support and choose and shape the investigative journalism that the spin-off provides. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.